Well, we are in part five of a series that we have no idea how long it's going to be. Uh, that's kind of weird for me. I usually know, but we don't know how long this one's going to be. Part five, we call it the last word. We're studying the gospel of John. And I, I try to remind us every week, it is accurate when we say that John has the last word about Jesus in the New Testament because he writes basically uh, the five books that really belong at the end of the New Testament chronologically. His gospel, the one we're studying, three epistles that bear his name, and the book of Revelation. And uh, he writes those more than 60 years after the day of Pentecost, more than 30 years after most of the other leaders of the New Testament are gone. They've either been martyred or they've died, and John is the only remaining voice. He's the sole surviving elder of the New Testament. So when he writes his gospel account, which may just be, chronologically, the gospel of John may just be the last book written in the New Testament. So he really does have the last word. And we've talked about this off and on for a few weeks now, that John's gospel is unique for many reasons. 90% of the content in this gospel is exclusive to him. No parables in this gospel, but many conversations. Uh, we'll talk about a couple of them tonight. John is very selective about the events and the miracles that he records. Many times he'll put them together with Jesus' teaching. There's no Christmas story in the gospel of John. No baby in a manger, no shepherds, no wise men, no star, no angels. Because John knows that the birth of Jesus was well covered by the other gospel writers, Matthew and Luke specifically, when they wrote their gospels some 30 years earlier. He knows that the truth of the incarnation has been believed and preached by the New Testament church even longer than that. It's been about 60 years since Jesus uh, walked on the earth. So on the incarnation on the oneness of God, on the new birth, baptism in Jesus' name, the infilling of the Holy Ghost, on that and many other doctrines, John assumes something. He assumes that his readers already know what Jesus and his church practiced and preached because it's been six decades. And that's why it is actually really critically important to read the Gospel of John in light of what we've called this series. It is the last word. We understand just a little bit of history will tell you that John's writing comes after the Gospels. It comes after the book of Acts. It comes after the New Testament epistles, not before them. John isn't writing a biography of Jesus. Other people have done that. He is writing a theology of Jesus. Now, I love charts, and you know that, and here's the chart that we're kind of working our way through. John spends the first half of his gospel, chapters 1 to 11, summarizing three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. And uh, that section contains seven miraculous signs that identify Jesus as the Word made flesh. It ends with the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which incidentally is the miracle that is kind of the last straw. And the Jewish council, they get so aggravated with him because the crowds are beginning to follow Jesus. And really, that's where the, the intense plotting of the Sanhedrin to put him to death, it begins after that last of the seven miracles. And then John does something very unique. Nobody else does this. He spends the last half of his gospel, chapter 12 to 21, summarizing just one week, the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. Five full chapters on one lengthy conversation between Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper, and then, of course, his death, burial, resurrection. Everywhere we look in this gospel, John isn't just emphasizing what Jesus did or where he went. He's emphasizing what Jesus said about himself and who he is. Jesus declares he is the word made flesh. He is the last word from God. So we'll pick up where we left off last week. After his conversation with the Samaritan woman, Jesus returns to the little village of Cana in Galilee. That was the site of his first miracle where he turned water into wine. And it is there that a nobleman from Capernaum makes the journey to Cana and he seeks Jesus out to ask for another miracle because his son at home is at the point of death. He's a powerful man, he's a nobleman, 
but he's powerless to change his situation. But thankfully, this desperate dad with a very sick son meets a very compassionate Christ. John chapter 4. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus says to him, he doesn't say, I'm going to come with you. He says, go thy way. And here it is, thy son liveth. Somebody say, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. Now watch this. And as he was now going down, his servants met him. This isn't a short little distance. He's making the journey home. His servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Somebody say, Thy son liveth. And then this man inquired of them the hour when he began to amend. When did my boy start to get well? And they said to him, it was yesterday. So this has been a long journey. He's halfway home, and, and he's been traveling since yesterday. Yesterday at the seventh hour, that's when the fever left him. And the father thought in his mind, and he knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth. Somebody say, Thy son liveth. And he himself believed and his whole house. It changed his world. Jesus spoke that prophetic word to him. Ecclesiastes 8 and 4 declares that where the word of a king is, there is power. And that's what John is teaching us here because this is actually what you might call a long distance miracle. Jesus doesn't go with the man. He simply speaks the word of faith. Thy son liveth. And because that nobleman believes the word of Jesus, he simply heads home with expectation that something is going to happen. And his servants meet him halfway and they bring him the same report. Thy son liveth. And when they begin to compare notes, they realize that the healing happened yesterday at the seventh hour. The exact time Jesus said those words. That miracle ended up impacting that entire family. And John specifically notes in verse 54, this is the second miracle that Jesus did in Galilee. It's an amazing thing. I remember, uh, as I, I, I read through this passage, I remember way back, anybody remember dial-up internet? You know, the funny noises from the modem. Some of you aren't even old, that old. Some of you are faking. You were there before there was internet, dial-up or otherwise. And it was slow to get online and webcasts. They weren't even called webcasts back then. They were primitive and, and whatever. We didn't have the website we have now or whatever. But our missionary friends, some of you would remember this story, Alan and Georgine Shaw, they were under like literal attack in Pakistan. It was rough and it was dangerous and, and their ministry and their work was under attack. And they were tuning in to our service and uh, they were dialing up, you know, internet and all of that noise and all of that business. And the, the webcast finally came on. And the first word, Sister Shalom said, we heard uh, Brother Woodward say, I just feel to pray for the Shams in Pakistan right now. And this church went to prayer for them. And that situation turned around for them. There is something about this long distance praying. This church prays for missionaries all around the world. And you know what? God answers prayer. He doesn't have to uh, have somebody come touch you. He can have somebody pray the prayer of faith and it can change. We, we pray for our missionary friends. You've probably already heard this, but uh, uh, about a week, two weeks ago now, there was a crusade, a three-day crusade in Bangladesh. Uh, we pray for the Corbins who are there. They're one of our missionary families. We pray for Brother Robinette and his wife Stacy. They were there leading a, a great team. And over three days, 11,000 people received the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. 5,000 people lifted their hand to say, God did a definite miracle in my 
my life. There were blind eyes that popped open. There were deaf ears that popped open. There were shriveled limbs. One lady, I think it was a lady, uh, couldn't move at all, could only blink. And God healed her, and she was running out in the parking lot or, or down the road or whatever after the crusade. Can I tell you that God can work long distance while you're sitting in a church on Wednesday night in a sanctuary? You can pray a prayer here, and God can answer that prayer there. You can pray for somebody else, and God can touch them because you prayed for them. This is a long distance miracle. That man got his miracle because when Jesus spoke the word, he believed the word. Your son liveth. And he just believed it and headed home. He didn't have an argument with Jesus. He didn't beg Jesus, oh, you got to come because if you don't come, if the pastor doesn't show up, if somebody special doesn't lay their hand on me, if it's not the evangelist that prays those words of faith over me, I can't be healed. That's rubbish. You can be healed because it's all about Jesus and his power to heal, not about anybody else and their power to do something. Thy son liveth. And it was done. And chapter 5, Jesus returns to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish feast days. On the way to the temple, he goes by the sheep market and right beside the sheep market is a pool named Bethesda. And it means, Bethesda means house of mercy. And that pool had become somewhat of a healing shrine. Because sick people from all over, they would gather in the five porches that surrounded that pool and they would wait. And the Bible tells us they were waiting for an angel to show up. They were waiting for the water to be troubled. They were waiting for their miracle to happen. Now we don't know because the Bible doesn't say. We don't know if that whole business about the angel troubling the water and people getting a miracle. We don't know if that's just a legend that had grown up or if somebody actually had been healed at that pool at some point. But whatever the case, whether it was a religious legend and people had gathered for that reason, or whether somebody way back had actually been healed there and everybody else was waiting for their chance, some of these people are so desperate that they have waited by this pool for years, wanting a miracle. And here's the setting in John 5. In these Five porches lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind and halt and withered, and they're waiting for the moving of the water. This is a pretty depressing scene when you think that some of them have waited for weeks and months and years and even decades. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water, stepped into the water, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. So these aren't just kind of casual little sicknesses. These are serious situations. People who are blind, people who are crippled, people who are deformed. And John uses the word impotent to define and describe this miserable mass of humanity. They are powerless to change. They have no strength to help themselves. They're impotent. They are powerless to, to do anything for themselves. And that's why they wait in these five porches day after day after endless day. See, the biggest problem with Bethesda in my estimation and probably in yours is that it seemed to work for a few but not for most. Whoever first got in the water, if that was even true, whoever first got in the water when that angel appeared and stirred up the water, whoever got there first, whoever could stumble or fall or, 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 or roll over and fall in the water, whoever got there first, they would be cured. But all the rest had to wait for another chance, another day, another service, another time. So Bethesda, although it was called the house of mercy, it was really kind of a depressing place. But on this day, brothers and sisters, Jesus himself steps into that atmosphere of frustration and he heads straight for one of the most senior members of the Bethesda fraternity. This crippled man has waited by this beautiful pool for 38 years. Now John may very well be using that little detail to remind us 
that according to Deuteronomy 2.14, Israel wandered in the wilderness for 38 years. We rounded off to 40 because there was that time when they sent in the spies and they waited for the report and then they decided not to go into the promised land. And then at the end there was Deuteronomy when Moses gave a speech and they met and they prepared to enter the land the second time. So we rounded up to 40 years, but really it was 38 years that they literally wandered through the wilderness. And this man for 38 years, he sat by this pool just hoping that he'll get his miracle that will deliver him. So the point John is making and the reason Jesus probably picked that man is this is a long term chronic critical absolutely hopeless situation. I don't know if you've ever seen or you've ever had or you've ever experienced a long term absolutely hopeless chronic critical situation. But let me tell you, it's no longer long-term, absolutely hopeless, chronicle and chronicle and critical when God shows up. It's no longer hopeless. Not when God walks into the room. My Bible still tells me this. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I don't want to weary you tonight, but I'm going to read that one again. With men, you say it's impossible. But with our God, all things are possible. Jesus says in Mark 9, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Mark 10, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things. Things are possible. You better amen or I'm going to read them all again. All things are possible. Not some things, not a few things, not the easy things, not the common things. But whatever it is that you have need of, it is impossible with man. You've already shaken your head, cried your tears. You've wet your pillow at night just saying, God, this is hopeless. But let me tell you, why it may, while it may be impossible with you, while it may be impossible with man, all things are possible with God. If you can just trust him like that man trusted him with his son, your son liveth. He just headed home expecting to see his boy out of that sickbed. With men, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. If that's not enough, try Luke 1. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. But it's big. Nothing shall be impossible. But it's bad. Nothing shall be impossible. But the doctor said, nothing shall be impossible. But the bankers, nothing shall be impossible. But the counselor, nothing shall be impossible. But my emotions, nothing shall be impossible. For with God. God, nothing shall be impossible. Luke 18, the things which are impossible with men are, Im are possible with God. And then just to throw Jeremiah in here from the Old Testament, God says, and the prophet quotes it to Israel, Behold, I am the Lord the God of all flesh. I created everything. I invented everything. I hold it all together by the word of my mouth. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. So here's the question God would ask you. Is there anything too hard for me? And I just want to answer that question tonight with a resounding no. There is nothing too hard for God. There's nothing too big for God. There's nothing too bad for God. There's nothing too far gone for God. There is nothing impossible with God. Oh my goodness. I just knew when I was typing those out this afternoon that I'd get stuck here because so often we accept things that we don't have to accept. We put up with things that we shouldn't put up with and we accept the devil's 
diagnosis and we accept the devil's threats and that just becomes our reality. But when you serve Jesus, he's the God who cracked open time and walked in in a body of flesh also he could walk among us and prove to us by his ministry that with God nothing shall be impossible. That with God all things are possible. That there is nothing too hard for God. I wish you'd lift up your hands and pray over that situation that rushed into your mind while I said all of those scriptures. You're thinking, yeah, it's impossible. Yeah, it's too far gone. The doctor said, the lawyer said, the banker said, the counselor said, I said, they said, if you just get your eyes on Jesus and get your eyes off all of that, with God, nothing shall be impossible. With Jesus, all things are possible. There is nothing too hard for him. There's no sickness greater than him. There's no situation that he doesn't understand and can't fix. There is nothing impossible with God. Oh my goodness. Now you just prayed about something. I wish you'd lift up your voice and worship God as though the miracle had already happened. Could you just accept that maybe in a Bible study on a Wednesday night in October, God could say, your son liveth. God could say, your daughter's coming home. God could say, your body's healed. God could say, your mother is going to be okay. God could say, your dad is going to break that addiction. If you could just accept that God could speak into your situation and you can take it home with you. But it's just Bible study. God is no respecter of persons. He's no respecter of our service schedule. God is looking for somebody that will accept his word and take it home. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. You can't see it yet, but while you're praying, somebody's talking to your boy sitting beside him on another bar stool. You can't see it yet, but while you're praying, God sends somebody into your daughter's college classroom and they're talking to her about God and, and she's having old songs and old sermons awake in her heart. You can't see it yet, but I just came to tell you something similar to what Jesus said. Your son lives, so go with expectation and believe I'm going to fix it. Believe I'm going to turn it around. My, my, my. Yes, 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 yes. Roto la basiesa. This is a tongue-talking, Pentecostal, apostolic, spirit-filled church that knows how to pray. I wish somebody filled with the Holy Ghost would ignore your emotions and just lift up your prayer and just pray in the Spirit. Pray until you feel it. Pray until you feel something shift, something break. There's a deliverance that doesn't come from me, doesn't come from the passion of the delivery of the pastor, doesn't come off the pages of the sermon notes. It's the Word of God. Your son's living. My goodness. My goodness. Is there anything too hard for me? Jesus, I say no. I've seen you turn it around too many times. I've heard the reports of healing too many times. There's nothing too hard for my God. My goodness. <laughs> so now Jesus walks into the pool of Bethesda, those five porches, and he walks straight to this man that's been laying there for 38 years. I don't know how long that noble man's son was sick, but it wasn't 38 years. This is an even more hopeless situation. And Jesus' question to him, it cuts straight to the chase. Wilt thou be made whole? Do you really want this miracle? The answer should be obvious, but this man on this day at this pool he doesn't respond with enthusiasm. He responds with excuses. When Jesus saw him lie, knew that he'd been now a long time in that case. That's an understatement. He saith unto him, wilt thou be made whole? And the impotent man, he answers him, sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me in the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. He is a truckload 
a boatload of excuses. I have no man. I'm dependent on other people instead of God. When the water is troubled, I'm dependent on ideal circumstances, not on God. I have no man when the water is troubled to put me in the pool. I'm dependent on certain locations. If it doesn't happen at a camp meeting, conference, youth event, church service, Sunday night when the praise team is going on about a thousand miles an hour and about a thousand decibels loud, I can't get it. I, I, I have nobody to put me in the pool. I've got to have a certain location. But while I am coming, I'm trying to get there. I'm dependent on my own efforts. I'm doing everything I can, Jesus. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Worst of all, in addition to all those other excuses, this man's entire focus, listen, is on what didn't happen before instead of what could happen now. Boy, I wish I could set a pile of Pentecostal people free from that attitude and that handicap. They're so bound. They're so disappointed. They're so focused on what didn't happen before, what didn't happen the last time they prayed, what didn't happen in the last service they were in, that they can't raise their faith level for what could happen right now. So you got to imagine this because this is kind of funny. you got this man. He's crippled. He's... He's laying there. He's been there for 38 years. And he's staring intently toward the waters of Bethesda. He's laser focused on the waters of Bethesda. And Jesus, God robed in flesh, is standing right here. Saying, would you like to be whole? Would you like to be healed? Would you like me to make a difference? And it's kind of like, get out of the way, Jesus. You're blocking my view of the pool. Somebody else might get there. If I don't have a clean shot, if I don't have a clear path, you're kind of in the way, Jesus. He's been doing the same thing for 38 years, laying on that bed, which has become a bed of excuses. But now Jesus says, get up. And when that crippled man responded in faith, immediately the miracle happened, and he picked up his bed, the thing that he'd been laying on for 38 years, and he began to walk. And Jesus simply said this to him, rise, take up thy bed, and walk. My goodness, I felt this today when I was studying. I just feel like repeating the words of the scripture to somebody in this place. It's time to rise up. It's time to take up whatever has been holding you back, holding you down. Whatever your excuse is, whatever your reason is, whatever your fear is, get up, take that up, and start walking with God. And if you'll do that, you will be healed. My goodness. This is the third miracle in the Gospel of John out of seven. And it stirs up a controversy that will follow Jesus throughout his ministry because this miracle was done on the Sabbath day. And the Jews are more concerned about their tradition than they are about this man's condition. And here's what the Bible says. It's hard to believe. It's, it's, it's crazy. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and they sought to slay him. Why? Because he'd hurt somebody? Because he'd done something illegal? No, because he had done these things. What things? He'd healed people on the Sabbath day. And when they came to Jesus with that accusation, who do you think you are healing on the Sabbath day? What do you think you're doing messing up the, all the traditions? Jesus answered them and said, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. And therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him. He still, they still didn't listen. Because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but he said also that God was his father. Now watch this, it's very important. Making himself equal with God. Jesus just gave a powerful principle in his response when he said, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. You see, the definition of a miracle is when God does instantly what he normally does gradually. That's the definition of a miracle. When God does instantly what he normally does gradually. For example, nature slowly turns water into wine through fermentation. The water in the grapes becomes wine. But Jesus did that instantly. The farmer slowly multiplies bread 
through planting, sowing, reaping, harvesting, baking. But Jesus multiplied bread instantly. The doctor slowly heals bodies through medicine. But Jesus did it instantly. That's the very definition of a miracle. When God does something instantly that he normally does gradually. And while theologians miss it every day of every week of every year, all the time today, the Jews knew exactly what Jesus had just said to them. He was making himself equal with God. He literally was telling them, you don't have any control or any authority over me. If I want to heal on the Sabbath, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I gave you the Sabbath. You're looking at God in a body of flesh. There's a scripture in Hebrews that's very beautiful. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, we'll celebrate in just a couple of months that God was incarnated, robed in flesh, came into the world. There, wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. When the Bible refers to the Son of God, it's talking about that body that God occupied for 33 and a half years. Some of you, if you... Uh, <laughs> What is it you do on Facebook? You follow people? That sounds kind of creepy. If you follow me on Facebook, you would know that my son's birthday was last week and I wrote this in a Facebook post. I'm a pastor and part of that privilege is explaining concepts like the incarnation. How Jesus could be almighty God in a body of flesh and why the Bible could still call him the Son of God. He's Almighty God, but he's still called the Son of God. And I said this, it's pretty simple, pretty elementary, but it means a lot to me. It's not all that difficult to understand that concept if you're a dad. Because having a son is like having your own heart walking around outside your body. You feel that way about your kids. You're joined some way that other people are not joined. And no wonder, I said this, no wonder God gave his son. That was the only way he could communicate his amazing love for us. So brothers and sisters, yes, the word became flesh. God came to earth in a body. Why? So we could feel what you feel. So we could go through some of the things you go through. So we could have people hate him and misuse him and abuse him. So he could cry tears and feel tired and experience pain. That's why he came. So that when you go to him in prayer, it's not strange to him. He's not way up here and you're just this little tiny thing down here that he doesn't care about. No, when you pray to him, he understands where you're coming from. And the reason he feels compassion for you is because God robed himself in flesh. And so the rest of this chapter contains Jesus' lengthy answer to the objections of the Jews. And he methodically makes a case. It's all through chapter 5 of John. He methodically makes his case that if the man they can see is doing the same things as the God they can't see, then the Father and the Son must be one. In other words, the body standing before them must house the spirit of the God that created them. That's what we doctrinally call the mighty God in Christ or the oneness of God. That Jesus isn't just part of God, a junior God, part of a committee of gods. He is almighty God. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's Jesus. 
And so in this chapter, he tells them, the Father and the Son do the same things. Verse 19, the Father and the Son do greater things. Verse 20, the Father and the Son raise the dead. Verse 21, the Father and the Son judge the world. Verse 22, the Father and the Son deserve worship. Verse 23, the Father and the Son speak the word. Verse 24 and 25, the Father and the Son give life. Verse 26, it goes on and on and on. Here's Jesus' case. If the Father and the Son are doing identical things, things and if they both have all power and if they both command the elements and if they both can break the the, the laws of nature then the father and the son must be one and the same. I'm so glad that somewhere way back when in our family we got a hold of that revelation that Jesus isn't just the dead founder of our religion but even more than that he's not just part of God and we pray to Jesus and he runs and tells God the father or or worse, his mother Mary, what we want. No, Jesus is almighty God. When you say Jesus' name, you're talking to God. When you worship Jesus, you're worshiping God. When you sing to Jesus, you're singing to God. When you lift your hands to Jesus or bow your knee to Jesus. Uh, whew. I am so wound up about this tonight. Verse 37, this is Jesus' conclusion to this little case that he makes. And the Father himself, which has sent me, hath borne witness of me. You see me doing what the Father does? You see me working miracles that you say only God could do that? That's the witness that I and the Father are one. You have neither heard his voice at any time. He said, none of you standing here have heard the voice of God, nor seen his shape. And you have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, in other words me, him you believe not. So you don't have God's word in you. You don't have the spirit of God in you because the one that God sent, the body that God manifested himself in, you don't even believe me. And then he says the punchline. Search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. But listen. They are they. The scriptures are what testify of me. Here you are with your little religion and you're searching and studying the scripture. You're reading the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs. You're reading Genesis and Exodus and you're reading Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You're reading through all the history and all the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. You're searching the scriptures and you think that's doing something for you, but unless you accept who I am, unless you accept what I have done, unless you accept that I am God, you're wasting your time because the scriptures all point to me. The scriptures all testify of me. What are you saying, Jesus? I'm saying I'm the voice of God, and I am the shape of God. I'm saying I am the brightness of God's glory. I am the express image of his person. That's what Hebrews 1 and 3 says. Jesus is the word of God manifest in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16. He dwells among us. John 1.14. He is the son of God, which means that Jesus is the body of God. Hebrews 1 and 8. Hebrews 10 and 5. In other words, Jesus is God and every scripture in your Bible is designed for one reason, whether Old Testament or New, whether written by a prophet or a pastor, whether it was written by somebody that was a historical person or whether it was written by somebody that was right in the throes of preaching the gospel. It doesn't matter matter. Every scripture in your Bible is designed to point you like runway lights at an airport to guide that plane in. All of the scriptures testify of Jesus. This isn't in my notes, but I need to say this. The Bible points us to Jesus and Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, all of the promises of God in him are yes and in him are amen. So I'm not a dummy. I know that when I look in the Old Testament and God says to Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you. I know that wasn't written to me. I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty bright. I'm halfway intelligent. I know that wasn't written to me, but Paul gives me permission to 
to go and grab that out of the book of Joshua because it's Paul who said all of the promises of God in Jesus are yes and in Jesus are amen. That's why I can go back to Joshua and say, God, every place that the sole of my foot treads, you're going to give it to me. That's why I'm going to walk around my house and I'm going to pray. I'm going to walk around the bedrooms where my backslidden children sleep and I'm going to pray. Every place that my foot treads, you're going to give it to me. I know that God and his word, those words were first spoken to a Philippian jailer and thou shalt be saved and thy house. I don't live in Philippi. I'm not a jailer and I've never met the apostle Paul nor imprisoned him nor beaten his back with a cat of nine tails. However, those words that were spoken to that Philippian jailer, Paul said all of the promises of God in Jesus are yes and in Jesus are amen. So I need that one every once in a while and thou shalt be saved and thy house. I'm smart enough to know that when God spoke, I am the Lord that healeth thee, he spoke that to Moses and the children of Israel. But Paul said, all of the promises of God in him are yes and in him are amen. So every once in a while, I run back to the Old Testament and I say, God, I need that one. I am the Lord that healeth thee. That's what Jesus is saying. All of the scriptures point to me. All of the scriptures testify of me. I'm the voice of God. I'm the shape of God. I am the word manifest in the flesh. I am the word dwelling among you. I am the son of God. I am the body of God. It's amazing. The fourth miracle John records in his gospel is actually recorded by all four gospel writers. It's one of the most famous miracles that Jesus did. Maybe because we all like to eat. I'm not sure. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the feeding of the 5,000, probably because it impacted such a huge multitude of people at one time. It happens at Passover, and Passover always reminds the Jews of Moses. But Jesus says, I'm greater than Moses. And he says that because he tells them in this chapter, chapter 6 of John, he said, I'm the true bread. Moses gave you manna. Moses gave you bread from heaven. It's called manna. You got it every day for 40 years. But I'm better than Moses. I'm greater than Moses because I'm the true bread. I'm the bread of God. He says all these phrases. I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. I'm the living bread. He even says this in verse 51 of chapter 6 in John. He said, the bread that I will give is my flesh, my body. Jesus is talking about his crucifixion, but even his disciples don't quite understand what he's saying at this point. Now, it's in the middle of this lengthy discourse about his identity that Jesus directly uses the holy name of God, first revealed to Moses at the burning bush, I am that I am. He uses that name in reference to himself when he says in verse 35 and verse 48, I am the bread of life. Ego I me, I am. It's a direct reference back to what Moses encountered at the burning bush when God revealed himself. Now, of course, the Jews are angry when he says that because they understand the implication. Jesus is once again claiming not to be like God, but to be God manifest in the flesh. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Why? I am that bread of life. Now, here's the strange thing. When we say Jesus' disciples, we normally think of the 12. But there were many people that followed Jesus. And at this point, even some of Jesus' own disciples were offended by this claim. It tells us that in chapter 6, verse 61. They were offended at this. They were following him for what he could do for them. He could feed them with miraculous bread. He could heal broken bodies. They were following him for what he could do for them, not because of who he was. 
So when it came to the revelation of truth about Jesus, they walked away. Can I just tell you something? And you, I hope you feel exactly the same as I do, and I believe that you do. I am not following Jesus because he answers every single prayer I ever pray. I am not following Jesus because I always understand exactly what he's doing while he's doing it. I am not following Jesus because every day just turns up smelling like roses and I just wake up in a sugar high every morning. I am not following Jesus because I've never cried a tear or never been sick or never had an issue or a problem or a disappointment. I am following Jesus because of who he is. One preacher said, if a man can raise himself from the dead, I'm going with him. Whatever he says, I'm going to do. Whatever he commands, that's what I'm going to do. If a man can raise himself from the dead, that man's God. Man can't do that. I am not following Jesus because he's always done everything I wanted. I am following Jesus because of who he is. But this is a tragic point in the Gospel of John. Nobody else records it like this. From that time, after this revelation, I am the bread of life. From that time, they were there for the 5,000. They were there for the, the bread and the fish and the loaves. And they were there to gather up the baskets. And they were there for all of that. But when Jesus gave them revelation of who he was, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And Jesus looks at the 12 disciples that we know very well. And he said unto the 12, Will you also go away? You going to leave me too? You going to walk too? You going to wave goodbye too? Will you also go away? And thank God for Simon Peter. He could put his foot in his mouth faster than anybody else in the first century. But every once in a while he said something so powerful. Then Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else would we go but with you, Jesus? Because you have the words of eternal life. Yeah, thank you for the bread, the little lunch with the fish. Good. Thank you for being there when you turn water into wine. Thank you for that. But you got something way better than wine and bread and fish and healings and little miracles. You have the words of eternal life. And Peter says it, and he gets it right. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Let me tell you something. I don't know. I can't guarantee. I can't answer for God. Some of his ways defy my mind. I don't understand why he allows certain things and why he doesn't fix other things. And I don't understand sometimes. But here's what I know. To whom would I ever go? Because Jesus alone has the words of eternity eternal life and I just say with Peter and I believe and I am sure that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God I'm not here because of what he's done for me I'm here because of who he is I am 60 years old I have spent the majority of my life now teaching and preaching the word of God. What a privilege and what an honor that has been. And I haven't done it because it's a, a nice, comfortable occupation or it's a convenient salary or it's whatever other kind of perk or privilege you might think. I preach and teach the word of God because in the word of God, I search the scriptures and they show me, they testify of Jesus on every page. And I am sure, I believe, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let me continue. The feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus' discourse about being the bread of life, they take place one day apart. On one day, he feeds the 5,000. On the next day, he has that discussion about, I am the bread of life. They take place not only a day apart, but they take place on opposite sides of the Sea of Galilee. And it is during the night in between, in between when Jesus says, he, when he multiplies the bread, he feeds the 5,000, in between that day and the next day when he talks about I and the bread of life, during that night in between, 
Jesus does another miracle. It is the fifth miracle out of the seven miracles that are recorded by John in his gospel. This is not the miracle where Jesus calms the storm by saying, peace be still. It's not that miracle. That event is recorded in Matthew 8, Mark 4, Luke 8. And in that miracle, the one where he gets up in the bow of the ship, he's sleeping, they wake him up, he stands up, says, peace be still. He is with the disciples in the ship that time. This is a different miracle. This time around, he is not even with them when they face the storm. Has Jesus abandoned them? Not at all. But he's about ready to perform a miracle that will definitively reveal his deity. And here's the account in the Gospel of John. And when the evening was now come, Jesus' disciples, he's not with them, they went down unto the sea and they entered into a ship and they went over the Sea of Galilee toward Capernaum. So they're going to the other side. And it was now dark. It's the middle of the night. And Jesus was not come to them. He's not with them this time. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. I've read the Gospels before and thought, I wonder why they didn't just walk around the Sea of Galilee. It seems like every time they went across, they got in a storm. So when they had rowed about 5 and 20 or 30 furlongs, they're about halfway across this massive Sea of Galilee. They see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship. And they were afraid. This has never happened before. This is very weird. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Maybe you're here tonight, and you've been there. Not in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, but you've been in the middle of the storm. You've been in the middle of the dark. You've been in the middle of the night. You've been in the middle of the problem. They are halfway across the Sea of Galilee, and it looks like they're going to certainly perish. And Jesus is nowhere to be found. In fact, the Bible specifically says that they parted ways after the feeding of the 5,000, and he went up to a mountain to pray all alone, and they went to get in the boat and headed across the sea. They are in the middle of the dark, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the storm, and certain destruction seems imminent. But just then, when all hope seems lost... Jesus shows up in his water-walking majesty. If you think Jesus was just a man, go try that. Only God can walk on the waves of the sea. You don't believe me? Here's what Job said. Job is the oldest book in the Bible. In fact, John's probably the last book written in the Bible chronologically. Job is the first book written in the Bible chronologically. Here's what Job said. God alone spreads out the heavens and treadeth upon the waves of the sea. Do you know what Jesus was doing that night in the middle of the night when he came walking toward their boat, walking up one wave and down the side of another? Do you understand what he was doing? Every step he took, every wave that he walked on, every footfall said, I am almighty God because only God can tread upon the waves of the sea. So every soggy, wet, water-encrusted footstep when Jesus put his foot down and it didn't go into the water, it just splashed around on the water, every footfall was saying, I am almighty God and I didn't leave you alone and I didn't leave you to negotiate your storm all by yourself. I showed up in the middle of the dark, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the storm when all hope is lost and you've just given up, I'm going to show up and I'm going to show you what I can do. In conclusion, many Christians today, they think that God has promised them smooth sailing in this life. But brothers and sisters, let's be honest, that's simply not true. Jesus said in John 16, he said, in this world you shall have tribulation. The Bible teaches us 
that storms will come. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus' disciples. He was the one who sent them across the Sea of Galilee, knowing all the time that they would encounter the night and the dark and the wind and the waves and the storm and the rain. He had tested them in a storm before when he was in the boat with them, but this time he tested them by not being in the boat. And they felt like they were all alone. And I stand here tonight to speak to somebody. Maybe you're watching online or maybe you're sitting in this building. I speak to somebody that feels like you're all alone. And you feel like Jesus hasn't shown up. And I would say to you, he's testing you by not being in your boat right now. But just because you don't sense him, see him, hear him, or feel him in your boat right now does not mean that he's left you all alone. Because in the middle of the worst situations imaginable, I've watched Jesus show up and he just walks over the top of situations that would drown all of us. He walks over the top of sicknesses that should take us out, but they never did. He walks over the top of all kinds of issues that should have destroyed us for good and taken us far away from our faith. But Jesus has this habit of just showing up at the very last moment, but he's right on time, and he walks over the top of everything we're facing, and when he shows up and gets in our boat, it's all over for the problem and the storm and the situation. Why did Jesus walk on the water? Two reasons. Number one, to show them he was God who could tread on the waves of the sea. Number two, he was showing them that the thing that you fear, the water, the waves, the storm, the rain, the thing that you fear is actually the thing that's going to bring me close to you and you close to me. I'm going to walk right over the top of the waves. You think they're going to kill you. You think they're going to do you in. But I'm going to use the thing that you fear the most to bring me close to you and you close to me. And at first they didn't recognize him. They're scared because they weren't expecting him to show up in their storm. But then God Almighty spoke to them. That little verse, verse 20. You miss it if you just read it in the English. But if you look at the Greek language, it's amazing. But he saith unto them, it is I, be not afraid. Somebody say, it is I. In the Greek language, that is ego I me. It's the very same as when he said, I am the bread of life. And he reached back to that great day of revelation with Moses seeing the burning bush and God giving him his name. I am that I am. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, he was claiming to be almighty God. And when he looked at those disciples with the rain pelting down on them and the waves tossing them to and fro and the dark uh, moonless night all around them and they are scared out of their wits, he looked at them and he said, I am. Don't you be afraid because Almighty God just stepped into the middle of your storm. Almighty God just walked into the middle of the darkness. Almighty God is just about to step onto your boat and when Almighty God shows up, it is all over for the devil and it's all over for the storm and it's all over for the situation. No wonder John doesn't record this because John knows everybody knows this story and John knows Peter probably bragged about this story for 30 years until he he was martyred so John doesn't record this but Matthew does and Mark does that Peter he got so bold in that moment when almighty God revealed himself in the person of Jesus walking across the waves of the sea. You know what Peter did? Hey, Jesus, can I join you? Can I walk on top of those waves too? Can I walk in the middle of an impossible situation and it not take me out? Can I try that too? And Jesus said, come on. And Peter actually jumps out of that boat. Now you all look at his failure. Yeah, he tried, but then he sunk. But he didn't drown. He walked all the way back 
with Jesus to the boat after Jesus lifted him up. What I'm saying is, if you'll just try, if you'll just step out, if you'll just listen to what God is saying, you can walk over the top of whatever storm it is that's inhabiting your life right now. You say, but I might fail. Jesus will be there, the same God that shows up to calm the storm, stop the storm, get in your boat. He can lift you out of the raging waves and it will be okay. Oh my goodness. I'm sorry, I never do this because I'm a teacher and teachers, they have like lesson plans or whatever they call this thing. I never do this. But I just want to go back. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. With men, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me. What do you think Jesus is saying in these stories in the gospel of John? I can show up at a pool and I can let your legs gain strength. I can show up at a well and I can change a nameless woman's life forever. I can speak a word and a nobleman's son can get up out of a sick bed at that exact moment even though he's miles away and I can walk over the top of your storm and I can show up in the middle of your darkest night and I can change every I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And the resounding answer from every believer and from the apostolics and from the Pentecostals and from CCC is no, there is nothing too hard for our God. I'm done. I wish you'd stay.